you grab your seats. If you have your Bible, we are turning to Isaiah 43 to two well-known verses. We're going to tackle it in a slightly different way, which I'll explain in the moment. Isaiah 43 and verse 18. We're also going to be looking at this through another lens that we're not going to read, but we're going to reference, which is Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Isaiah 43 verse 18 says this, Forget the former things, do not dwell in the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Now, we don't do this often, but as we explore these just couple of verses, we're actually going to look at it side by side with another translation just to help us understand it a little bit more. And the other translation that we lean to uh, is the message translation, which says, forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert, be present. I am about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? There it is. I'm making a road through the desert and rivers in the badlands. Now, these verses are reasonably well-known verses from Isaiah. They are verses that would normally get pulled out at start of new seasons or start of new years, and they can quite often get quoted to kind of almost shimmy or, or shun the past and, and shimmy us into the new year. It's a lot of shunning and shimmy. I don't know where that came from. Um, but we want to handle these verses properly. So we do a little bit of an understanding to what's going on as these verses are written. And here is the very potted, and I mean very potted, version of the storyline. These words are spoken when the Jewish people are in exile in Babylon. And the story goes that after the death of Solomon, 10 of the tribes of Israel were kind of gathered in the north and they formed Israel. And two tribes gathered in the south and formed Judah. The big scary superpower at the time was Assyria. And the surrounding nations sought to kind of join together and form a coalition to, to fight against Assyria, to, to limit their empire building, to prevent being brought under their control, to assume and to protect their liberty and their own freedom. However, Judah didn't want a seat at that table. Judah as a country, as a people, didn't want to be part of that parade. And for some reason, Israel just weren't happy about the fact that their next-door neighbors weren't backing them up. So Israel joined forces with Syria to invade Judah to try and kind of force the arm, as it were, to get them to get on board with this. But Judah wasn't daft. Judah thought, if these people are joining forces because they're scared of Assyria, then the door that I'm going to knock on for protection is the Assyrian door. And they knocked on the door of the Assyrians, and the Assyrians said, we're happy to lend you a hand. And they stepped in, and they kicked Israelite and Syrian butt without very much effort at all. But equally, Assyria wasn't daft and thought, well, Judah, if you don't think you're strong enough to stand against the other countries, you're not strong enough to stand against us. And they enslaved them as a people. The problem is that bullies are only bullies till the next big bully comes along. And Judah managed to kind of break free and hold their own for a period of time, but it wasn't long before a new superpower came to town and Egypt rose up. And Egypt defeated Assyria. But then Babylon rose up and Babylon defeated Egypt. And Judah was the milky bar kid in the playground getting passed from one big boy to the next big boy to the next big boy and moved from the power of Assyria to Egypt 
to Babylon and ended up being carried off into exile in Babylon. And into this context comes Isaiah. God raises Isaiah up to minister and to prophesy within this arena. And in the latter part of the book of Isaiah, his prophecies are all about the Jewish people's return from exile. If you read through them, you can see that this is the undertones. And if you read through them, you can see that he is comforting them. Don't worry, we're going to come out of this. But he's also envisioning them at the same time. He's envisioning them with freedom. He's envisioning them with a future. And as he calls out these messages of freedom and he calls out these messages that speak of a future, he begins to build hope within them, hope of what it is that God is going to do. And this season that the Jewish people are in as we read Isaiah 43 is a season that is all about vision because that's what God is doing to them or with them through the ministry of Isaiah. The words that we read today are part of God looking to lift the eyes of his people and as he does to lift the head of his people too. He wants them to see beyond their current reality. He wants them to have hope. He wants them to look beyond their current horizon. He wants them to believe for and to be prepared for what is to come. And the language that we read in the verses that we're looking at today is all visionary language. It's language that's all about seeing and knowing and perceiving and understanding and thinking. Now, the overall message here from Isaiah is this. Soon, God is going to bring you out of this. Soon, he's going to do an amazing thing. Soon, he's going to visit his people with his power and he's going to establish them in purpose. But first, before all of that, He changes the way that they see. And as we draw a parallel from this, I think God wants to speak to us twofold. Because right now there is shift happening in spiritual places. As we enter into a new year, God wants to minister to us personally in the midst of this significant shifting. And he wants to minister to us personally about the way that we see. He wants to minister with regards to our outlook on life. And he wants to minister personally with regards to our own perspectives on the way that we walk and the way that we function. But as well as that, God, it would seem, is drawing our attention as a church to the way that we see as a people. He's envisioning us. He wants to give us new vision. And by that, we don't mean new direction. It's not like, hey, there's a brand new vision. There's a brand new direction that we're going in. But rather, he wants to give us a new vision in that he wants to change our perspective, to give us a new lens. He is defining our outlook. In fact, more than that, he's moving us from seeing to beginning to watch To watch is not the same as to see. When you sit at home, you don't see your television. You watch your television. Watching is different. Watching is an active, intentional seeing. It is to see things and to look for things on purpose. It's to look for things due to expectation and due to anticipation. Glasgow Elam, he calls us to watch, not just to see but to watch, and in fact, I think he's calling us to a watch. Not as in a watch, but as in a watch. 
And I think this message is to be a bit like a trip to the optician for us as a church. But like that moment when you sit in the optician's chair looking at what is in front of you and as the right lens gets slipped into those funny wee glasses, suddenly everything becomes clearer. Suddenly in that moment, what you know to be in front of you and you know it's in front of you because you've said the line three million times. So when they're like, better, worse, better, worse, you're like, I don't have a clue, but I've memorized the line because I've said it that many times. in that moment that which you know to be in front of you suddenly becomes clearer and becomes the clearest that new lens without taking the analogy and the metaphor too far that new lens in the optician's chair then becomes your prescription and forever defines the way that you see the world and therefore impacts the way that you journey from that moment onwards and I think this morning God is putting us in the optician's chair as it were to deal with our outlook and our vision he's giving us not just a new lens but Glasgow Elam he wants to give us a brand new prescription and this actually is really important What we've just described is actually what God was doing for the Jewish people through the ministry of Isaiah in the verses that we've read. He's moving them from just seeing to watching. He was positioning them with expectation, with hope, with anticipation. He was moving them to an intentional seeing. He was getting their souls ready for what it was he was about to do. And he says to them, forget the former things. Do not dwell in the past. The message version says, forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. See, the point at which Isaiah prophesies and reveals the voice of God to the people, they are in exile. They have been carried off into a foreign land to be exiled and enslaved, and they've been there before, or at least their ancestors have. It's a famous part of their story as a people. In fact, it's proudly part of their heritage. It's part of their identity and that they live with and that they relive year in and year out as they're commanded to do. The Jewish people were in exile before. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. And God brought them out of that, and he established them as a people. And this prophetic utterance that he gives, Isaiah gives, this heritage and this storyline gets referenced. We read the verses, verse 18 and verse 19, but in the verses just before that, verse 16 and 17, it says this, this is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He says, I am the God that parted the sea and made the way through. I am the God who took Pharaoh's best men who came chasing after your ancestors and I snuffed them out and I removed their influence and oppression out of the way. I am the God that rescued you as a people from this position before. And right now through Isaiah, I'm revealing to you that I am about to do it again. But the God who made the way through the sea says this. These are the words of he who cast the horse and rider into the sea. Your deliverer declares to you, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. And in the use of language, when we write and when we speak and we talk about former and we talk about latter, the the former is often a reference to what has been formally said, as in what has just been said, as in just a few sentences ago. So the former things that have to be forgotten, it would seem, 
for the things of the past that have just been referenced. It's not an unfair handling or an inaccurate interpretation to assume that the former things that have to be forgotten are the making of the way through the waters and the chariots, horses, armies, and reinforcements being snuffed out. We kind of get this vibe because the message says, don't keep going over old history. They've listed history and then he says, don't keep going over old history. When God is setting the people up for, for deliverance, He's setting them up for a move of his hand and a move of his power. It's establishing of his people within purpose and establishing them within a renewed identity. And as he gets ready to do that, he describes to them a time in their history when he's done it before. He talks about how he's delivered them in the past and the ministry of Isaiah is God calling out that he's going to do it again. This is what they're going to see. But the prophetic utterance from Isaiah is not just a calling out of what it is they're going to see. It's a call to begin to watch for it. Be alert. Be present. Can you perceive this? It's bursting out. Do you see it? It's to be on the lookout. It's to be intentional in seeing. It's to have hope, anticipation, and expectation for what it is that God's going to do next. It's not a wishful anticipation. It's a watchful anticipation, he calls them to. They're to look for it coming around the corner. And in order for them to see it properly... He says to them, forget the former things, don't dwell on the past, don't keep going over old history. I need to give you a new lens so that you can see what is in front of you properly. If you look through the lens of plagues and Red Sea parting and let my people go, then you're not going to see what it is I'm about to do. If you watch for that, you're going to be disappointed because that lens is a blinker. It restricts the way that you see and it impacts what you're able to see. You actually need a brand new lens, God says. When you go to the optician and they give you a new prescription, you don't keep looking through the old one. Because if you do, you won't see properly. And if you do, it will damage your eyes. It will damage your vision and impact your ability to see. God says here in these prophetic words, in order to see right, in order to watch and see what it is I'm going to do, it's time to replace the lens. And the wording here seems quite strong. Forget the former things. Don't dwell in the past. Don't keep going over old history. It sounds a bit strong and it sounds a bit dismissive of what has been. In fact, it sounds outrightly disrespectful of history. But you know what? I'm not sure that the call to forget is about removing things from memory. It, it can't be. God has instructed them in his law that they are to remember the Passover. They are to celebrate these things. They are to honor these things. They are to reenact them even. I don't think the call to forget is about removing these things from memory, but I think what God is speaking to here is mindsets and thought processes and attitudes the call here is to not keep repeating past events as the current narrative. Not allowing past exploits to be the fuel for the present journey because it's not fuel, it's just fumes. Now, these words tell us that the past cannot and should not set the boundaries for the current season. 
in that the past cannot and should not set the expectation of the current season or even of the next season or determine what the experiences within those seasons are going to be. God says don't dwell on the past. To dwell is to live. And it's not so much that God is saying don't live in the past, but specifically he says here don't live on the past. He doesn't have an issue with memories. What he has an issue with is mindsets. He says, don't dine out on your past. Don't live on your past. That's Galen, please hear heart and the respect of my heart is what I say next because it's what I really strongly believe God told me to say today. It's time for the renewal of the 90s to no longer be stripes on Glasgow Gillum's sleeve. And please hear heart here. I was here in the renewal. You didn't know me then. I was a young baby-faced boy. But I slipped in at the back of many a Saturday night renewal meeting. And I lay for many ministry times on your carpet being wrecked by God. I was here and remember the season, season in which we all faced that way because of the extension that was happening here. And I was relatively new to Pentecost then. I was relatively new in my experience of the Holy Spirit. I was in the formative stage of my journey with the Holy Spirit and into the Father heart of God. And the outpouring of the Spirit here shaped me hugely. And it played a really significant role in my spiritual development as well as in my ministry style and ministry approach. And I say all of that to say that what I'm saying today is not coming from a place of this was before my time at Glasgow Elam, so it doesn't count. Quite the opposite. I was here. And I'm not looking to discredit or disrespect anything of what God did during that phenomenal chapter of Glasgow Elam. I thank God for that time of renewal, sincerely and genuinely. And I thank God that for me, he has given me the privilege to serve the house that so profoundly impacted my ministry and my life during that time, during that formative time and during what was a really difficult time. But Glasgow Elam, look around right now. Is God doing renewal now? And before the answer in your head rises up as, well, is he allowed? Is ministry given? Is space given by the leaders? Well, look further than Glasgow then. Look across our city. Look across our nation. Look across the world. Is God doing renewal now? No. So we've got to guard against looking through that lens. And we've got to guard against watching for what God does next by looking through that lens. Because if we do, we'll miss it. It will become a blinker. If you watch for yesterday, you'll miss tomorrow. You'll miss today. And we've got to focus on what God is doing now and not look for him to repeat history, but to create a new present and to reveal potential. And I wonder if we maybe need to do a bit of a funeral for that. Because, you know, at a funeral, you, you gather and you, you honor a life and, and you, you look back over the life and you look at the moments that were amazing and, and the incredible things that happened and the challenges and the difficulties and you celebrate and you honor that life and you thank God for the impact and the blessing of that life but you recognize that that life has come to an end and those things are not that person's present reality. 
we look back and we recognize that there was a wonderful season in Glasgow Elam's life. This was a move of God, right? We don't deny that. It was a move of God. God moved in supernatural ways. Lives were changed. Lives were healed. Deliverance happened. Manifestations of the Spirit. Growth happened. The shape, the culture, the dynamic of the church was drastically altered. And definition was changed for the better. And we thank God for that. And we celebrate that. And we honor that. But we have to recognize that this is not our present reality. So we need to look to what is. And a call comes from heaven to change the old lens and replace it with a new one. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something brand new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? The call here is to have eyes that see. And in order for our vision to be filled with the new, it cannot be clouded with the old. And when we say old, we don't mean out of date and irrelevant and out of touch. Not at all. We just mean it's in the past. If we're looking for the old, we won't be able to see the new. We cannot allow past narrative to cataract our current perspective. And again, these words are spoken to people in exile about to be delivered. God is about to visit them. He's about to display his might and establish them as a people again. But his warning to them is clear. If you're looking for plagues, if you're looking for the parting of the Red Sea and the let my people go, you're going to be disappointed because what I'm about to do is a new thing. And it's within touching distance. Can you perceive it? Can you see it? Be alert. Be on the lookout for it. It's within reach. But first, I need to change the lens that you watch with so that you can see it. The call is not that they are not allowed to have memories and honor their past. God instructs them to do it as part of their regular spiritual walk. It's not that they've not to have memories. It's that they've not to dwell on it and allow it to define their life. Before God releases us into the new, he has to change the lens with what we see and and if you remember back when we first came to the church, I suppose some of this was playing on my mind and it was talking about, you know, we've got to look beyond renewal for the new thing. And, and I remember Susan speaking to me and speaking wisdom, which she always does, always, it's quite annoying. And she's always right. And I remember her speaking to me and saying, Fraser, you need to stop pointing back when you're trying to look forward. And, and, and she was right. And so, so we kind of sh- shelved some of that stuff. But just this week, never thought of it again, but just this week, God says that this has become a lens over the soul of the church. And that in some sense, it's like, this is what a move of God looks like. This is what it sounds like. This is what it feels like. This is what happens when it takes place. And God's like, actually, if we look through that lens, you're going to miss it. What is I'm about to do? The lens has to come off, church. We have to remove it completely in order to receive the new lens and to see the new thing that God is doing. And not look at if this isn't happening, because that's what happened when the Spirit moved, then it must mean the Spirit's not moving. No, 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 that's... There's a new lens. There's a new way. 
as God speaks to the people and he says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? The, the word perceive here means to gain knowledge as the result of seeing. It means that what you see has bought an, an understanding. So in order to know, in order to understand the new thing that God does, in order to grasp it, embrace it, receive it, the way that we see has to be changed. Our seeing is linked to our knowledge and experience and our experience and knowledge can shape the way that we see. And This has to not just land in a, in a church level, but it has to land in a personal level too. We step across the threshold of a new year and there's a whole new calendar of brand new experiences lined up for each and every one of us. It's called life. And prophetically, we recognize that there is a significant shift happening in the spiritual places just now and God is getting ready to do something very significant. There is this feeling, there is an awareness, there's an excitement. Many have been mentioning it. It's like we can't quite put our finger on what it is, but there's this feeling in the knower. That you know, that you know, that you know in the gut. There's this feeling that something's about to happen. Something's about to break. And I think the reason that we feel it, but we can't quite define it and put our finger on what it is, is because we need to change the lens in order to be able to see. To know, to understand, to grasp, to embrace, to experience the new that is in store. We have to change the lens through which we see and through which we look. The lens that is over the soul. The lens that shapes our individual worldviews that we have. The mindsets that we operate. The attitudes that we possess. The, the way that we journey. For some of us, there is this lens over the soul and the shape and the scope of that has been determined by the past. Both distant and recent. For some of us, the experience of childhood and the way that we've been raised and the things that happen to us during formative stages begin to shape the way that we see and the way that we live. It's a lens on the soul. For some, trauma and pain and loss and heartache and distress and injustice and difficulties and terrible things that have happened begins to harden the skin around the heart. And that's not wrong that that happens. It's natural that when we go through pain and heart and difficulty and trauma, it's natural that the heart hardens. But the problem is that that thickening of the skin actually becomes a lens through which the soul sees. And it begins to impact and determine the way that we see things and the way that we journey in the world and the way that we interact with the world and the way that we see people and trust people and interact with people. And then, of course, we have church. Church does all of that too, doesn't it? Church teaching, spiritual nurturing, discipleship approaches, ministry experiences, good, bad, and indifferent. They can shape the lens over the soul. And for some reason, reasons that aren't fully understood, although I think I maybe know why, but for some reason, when we go through trauma and pain and hurt that is church-related, it shapes the lens even more so, I think. And those experiences in church and those discipleship approaches and those, those ministry moments and experiences, the good ones, the bad ones, and the indifferent ones, they actually shape the way and the manner in which the soul sees and the soul interacts. It shapes the manner in which the soul is either open or closed. Open to ministry, close to ministry. Open to people, close to people. Open to connection, close to connection. Open to trust, close to trust. Open to change, close to change. And God calls to us. It's time to deal with the lens on your soul. 
because I'm doing a new thing and I want you to see it. Don't let the past cataract your soul. Don't let the narrative of past history continue its storyline. You can't see the new if you're looking for the old, looking at the old, looking through the old. I want to remove the cataract. I want to change the prescription. I want to lift the cloudiness. It's time for a new lens. Just this is so significant for us. It's a big thing. It's like at the optician when one lens is removed and the new is put in and suddenly that which is bloody becomes clear. This is what God says he wants to bring to us and we've got to understand the fullness of that because that's just a statement but what that means is deliverance, what that means is healing, what that means is freedom, what that means is release. This is transformative stuff that God wants to do. And it begins by being willing to let him change the way that we see. But also it involves responding to his call to not just see, but to watch. The message translation says, be alert, be present. I'm about to do something brand new. We are to be alert. This again is a particular way of seeing. To be alert is to be constantly looking. It is to be intentionally looking. It's to keep a lookout. It is to a prepared watching. It is to have a vision that is ready to see and is ready to perceive. In the message translation, interpreting the original language, calls us to be alert and calls us to be present. It's to be awake and to be attentive to what we're looking for. It's an occupied watching. To be present and to be alert is to occupy our watching, embody it. It's to give focus, to give attention, to give priority to our watching and our looking in order that we can begin to see. And the example that springs to mind with regards to this is the example of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. His watching stance wasn't passive. He wasn't watching with no real hope of ever seeing. He wasn't watching without expectation. He wasn't occasional in his watching. He was constant and he was consistent. He actively watched. He watched with active hope and expectation. He looked to the horizon because he expected to see. He looked to the horizon because he knew that what he was waiting for could be seen and would be seen and at some point would appear on the horizon. He didn't know when it would appear. He didn't know how it would appear. He didn't know what it would look like and what shape it would be in when it did appear, but he knew that it would come. The call to us is to occupy our watching, to be present and attentive, to be in the watchtower, looking with expectation, and like the father in the prodigal, when we see it coming on the horizon, we run to meet it. That when we see what he's doing appearing on the horizon, that we do everything in our power to close the gap between us and it, that we run out to meet it, that we embrace it, that we welcome it, and we make room to celebrate it. The father in the prodigal parable didn't allow the past to cloud his vision of the now. He didn't allow his actions or embrace to be shaped by the past, but his actions and embrace were shaped by the present reality. In other words, the welcome of his son was not tainted by the behavior from his son, but rather his welcome towards his son 
was shaped by what was currently happening. In fact, his whole house was shaped by what was happening. He invested his resources in the now. He invested his resources in making room for what was currently happening. He threw a party. He killed the fattened calf. He called the whole house to be part of the now moment. Every single servant. And that might not seem like a big thing, big deal. He threw a dinner party. But think of this. He called everybody in his considerable estate to come and celebrate with him. And his son had squandered half of it. Half of his wealth. There may not have been a lot of resource to go around. But he invested what he had in making room for and in celebrating what was taking place. This investment would have cost him. His spending today maybe impacted how he existed tomorrow. But as he threw this party and made room for what was happening now, his focus wasn't on tomorrow and his focus most definitely wasn't on yesterday. His focus was on today. He said, my son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. I think God is calling us to shift our vision, to move from passive to active, to move from looking to watching, to occupy our watching, to be present and alert and to begin to watch with expectant hope, to not have a, 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 a wishful anticipation where it's like, well, we know he's going to move. We don't really believe it's going to be today within the service or anything, but we know he's going to move. And at some point it might happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's moving from a wishful anticipation actually to a watchful anticipation. It's within reach. It's coming on the horizon. And as part of that, we have to be willing to invest our resources in today without fear for tomorrow or without that action being defined by yesterday. We have to invest our resources in what we see him doing now. See, God calls for the watching for the new thing, and he says, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? It's bursting out. Don't you see it? The inference in these statements is that the new has already begun. It's springing up already. It's bursting out already. The language that's used here is interesting. There's a statement, and then there's a question. And the statement is that the new thing that God is doing is springing up and bursting out. The new thing is attached to him. He says, see, I am doing a new thing, not see, you're doing a new thing. Or you're going to do a new thing. He says, see, I am doing a new thing. He makes it happen. He causes it to happen. But the question that comes to the reader is, can you see it? Do you perceive it? The suggestion that's here then is that it can break out and it can burst forth without being seen. The new season can arrive and it can begin without being perceived and without being experienced. Because we don't have the right lens. Again, we lean to the prodigal parable. The older brother couldn't see it. He couldn't get what his father was doing. He just couldn't get his head around it. Couldn't understand it. When the father threw a party for the wayward son. And the reason was because his vision was clouded with the past. With the actions of his brother in the past. But not just the actions of his brother, but the past hurt that those actions caused him. The pain that his brother caused when he saw him say to his father, I wish you were dead, I just want your money. I don't want you. The pain of having to live in a house and an estate 
and trying to maintain it with less resources because of the decision of his brother. The pain of growing up with somebody that would behave like that. The anger that he felt with regards to himself and the anger that he felt towards the the actions and, and the treatment of somebody else that he loved. He couldn't believe it. And now there's this feeling of injustice because a party has been thrown for this guy. And love has been expressed towards someone that just doesn't deserve it. He couldn't see it. He didn't get what the father was doing and he couldn't be part of it and he wouldn't be part of it and he couldn't experience it. And what is amazing in this parable is that the rejoicing father comes to the injustice son and he doesn't rebuke him saying, how dare you not come to my party? How dare you have this mindset and approach with regard to your brother? You are wrong and you need to sort yourself out. He doesn't say any of that. He says, son, to get this, to be part of this, to experience what's going on within your father's house, you need a new lens to look through. You're looking through the lens of the past. Forget former things. Don't dwell on the past. Forget about what happened. Don't keep going over old history. Here's the lens that you need to look through to be part of this, to experience this, to embrace this, to see it, to get it, to understand it. Here's the lens you need to look through. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. He says, let me give you a new lens to look at this through. Let me give you the lens to see this thing that I'm doing, to get it, to experience it, to be part of it. The new thing Isaiah says is the father's doing, it's attached to him. Which means that when he says he's doing a new thing, he's going to do it. Because he's the father and it's his house. But the question that comes to us is, do you see it? Do you perceive it? Because it's bursting out and it's springing up. The word springing up suggests something gentle. Gentle breaking in it. Spring is that which gently bursts up or bubbles up almost from the ground. And springs are small and they can be missed if they're not identified properly. They can be missed if you don't know what you're looking for. And a spring is normally the source of greater water supply. In Isaiah's prophecy, he talks about it springing up and bursting up and then he starts to talk about there being streams in the wasteland and, and rivers in the badlands. The spring is the starting point. It's the inception of the river. Springs become streams and streams become rivers. And as God says, you need a new lens, what he's calling us to see is spring not just to wait until the river has been established but to be part of what he is pioneering to see from inception and encounter at the source what he is doing and and what I think God might be saying to us Glasgow Elam is he's about to do a new thing in our city he's about to do a new thing in our nation and the option is there for us to be part of pioneering that with him as opposed to waiting and be caught up in it when it's established. To see the spring and be part of the journey of him breaking in and springing up. 
or just wait until it's all established to be carried along with the river. Prophetically, I think either way, he's going to visit this house with what he's doing. But the invitation is that we can be part of pioneering that or we can wait until it's been established. To be part of what God is pioneering means we've got to watch for and engage with its inception. But the inception stage is small. It can be missed if it's not identified. But what starts small is what God transitions towards significance. Don't despise the days of small beginnings. The spring becomes the river. We've got to recognize the small beginnings. We've got to recognize the spring. We've got to watch for it, look for it, see it. God is calling us to be part of this thing that he is pioneering, this new thing he is doing, and he begins at the spring. He starts with culture shift. He starts with calling to fruitfulness. He starts with the call to step up, to intercede, to enlarge the tent, to sing barren women sing. He starts with shaping mission with us. He starts with the call to seek God, share faith, serve others. He begins by commissioning us to have a generational perspective to encompasses the now, the next, and the not yet. It might not look like much if you're looking through the lens of previous moves of God. It might not look like much if you're looking through the lens of the past renewal experience. It might not seem like much, but he calls us to see the spring, to see the inception of something that he is doing, which he will make significant. He says, I am doing the new thing. The new thing is my doing. It's attached to me. The bit that is attached to you is to see it. It's to perceive it. It's already springing up. It's already bursting out. There it is. He says, there it is. It's going to be a river in the wastelands. It's going to be a road in the wilderness. And to see it, to grasp it, to embrace it, to experience it, you've got to change the lens. Isaiah speaks to an exiled people. God's going to bring you out again. Just like he did with your ancestors. He's going to visit you and it's going to be profound. But if you look for plagues, Red Sea partings, and let my people go, you're going to be disappointed. He says, I'm going to do a new thing. And it is indeed a new thing because now we're told there's a road through the wilderness. They're not just aimlessly wandering without a path. There's a road. There's going to be rivers in the wasteland. They're not striking rocks for water to come out and looking for oasis. And pools that need to be transformed to be drunk. He says, there's going to be rivers going to visit you like I visited your ancestors. I'm going to do something significant, but I'm going to do it in a new way. So we need to change the lens so that you can see. God's going to do something amazing. And we tend to think of the new as something bigger and better. And I don't know that we could use that language because with God, everything's amazing, Right? But if this phenomenal move of God that happened in the history of the church 
is the starting point. And I can't wait to see the amazing thing he does next. Like he moved then, he says, I'm going to do it again. But if you look through this lens of this is what it's going to look like and this is what it's going to sound like and this is what it's going to feel like and only when we reach these markers are we in it, you'll miss completely. You need a new lens to look through. But equally, he speaks to each and every one of us and he says, I'm about to do a new thing and I want you to see it. Not just the church, but you. And you need to change the lens that's on your own soul. The lens that has come through stuff you've been through. The lens that has been shaped in you. The lens that has come through church experience, good, bad, and indifferent. The models, the approaches, the things that have happened, the pain, the trauma. It's natural that it forms a lens, but God says, He wants to give you a new lens so you can see, know, understand, experience what it is he's about to do. So he puts us in the optician's chair this morning, corporately together as one, individually, and it's almost like it's a line in the sand where we make the choice to step over or not. And the choice, prophetically speaking, is to be at the forefront and part of what he is pioneering. Or he'll sweep in when the river's established and move amongst us anyway, in his way. But prophetically, the call is put to us. And what takes us over the line in the sand is when we let him deal with the way that we see. And when we are willing to say, not only will I allow you to change the lens, but God, today, I commit to move from wishful anticipation to watchful anticipation, to occupying watching, like the father on the horizon, looking for his boy. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know how it's going to come. I don't know what shape it's going to look like. But as soon as I see it, I will close the gap between me and it. I will make room for it. I will welcome it. I will embrace it. Might take me out of my comfort zone. Might not look the way I want it to look. Might take me to an experience I don't know that I want to have. But you're doing the new thing. So I know the thing is safe might be wild but I know it will be safe and I know that you are safe to come with the lens that I carry and the lens that I have shaped and to give it all to you and say okay I give you permission to go to the most vulnerable part of me and change the way that I see the way that I live the way that I interact, the way that my soul is open or my soul is closed, I give it to you. Would you stand with me?